looking at the parables and the miracles that we learn of Jesus in the Gospels. One of the things that's remarkable as you read these parables and miracles is that Jesus often says things and he does things that kind of catch us off balance. He doesn't say or do the things that we might expect him to do. And he does that for a reason not to be cute or not to be funny or not to be the center of attention because what he's really doing is showing you and I the true hope that we have that's in him. And so tonight we're going to see that in this passage in Mark chapter 2. So if you want to follow along with me, it's on that sheet. If you have a Bible, you can follow along there as well. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come to you trusting that ultimately you are our teacher. And that through the power of the Spirit, you can soften our hearts and give us the ability to understand what these words mean and what this message means for us in our lives. And that truly grasping that reality May our reaction be one of similar nature that we too will be amazed at who Jesus is. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, two years ago, I think, I think it was the first week of, of classes, I was leaving campus. It had been a full day. The first week of class is always a little bit crazy. It's always very busy. Um, and there's so many things going on, meeting new students, a bunch of activities. What I'm setting you up for is I'm making myself an excuse. Um, I was leaving campus. I had glanced down at my phone, probably for not something important. I'd like to tell you it was like a new student who needed to talk, but it was probably to listen to a podcast or something. And as I was grabbing my phone, all of a sudden I felt the, 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 just a sudden jolt of I hit the car in front of me. And I thought, man, and I hit it hard enough to know that that probably just did damage. So I put it in reverse, I get out, girl gets out of her car, uh, you can tell she's a little bit nervous. My first thought was to look and to see the airbag didn't go off, like, thank goodness. And then I look at her car to see if there's damage. Uh, and there was something that had gotten damaged by this, by this, you know, this impact. Uh, and she goes, I've never been in an accident before. <laughs> I, I think I need to call my mom. I was like, sure, call your mom. 
Um, and so she calls her mom and she comes back and we're looking at the car and I'm looking at the damage and I realize like actually it's really not damaged. There's like this little tab like weird thing that popped out and I thought while she's talking on the phone, I was like, I think I can just pop it back in and get it fixed. And, and, I, and, I, and I do, I'm like, I'm like fixing her car for her um, and she's trying to figure out like, what do we do, what do we do? And so I told her, I said, listen, here's, my, here's a copy of my driver's license, here's a copy of my insurance. Here's my card. Here's who I am. I'm a campus minister. Love for you to come to RUF sometime. Glad that this just happened. Um, I said, you know, feel feel free to do what you need to do. If you need to call insurance, whatever. But will you just do me a favor before you do anything? Will you just call me and let me know so I can figure out what I need to do and if it's possible for me to just pay for it. In that moment, you know, and as we're exchanging, of course, like the first words out of my mouth after I hit it is like, I'm so sorry. This is clearly my fault. I'm so sorry. Uh, and she was taken aback. She didn't know what to do. And after we exchanged all this information, she leaves and goes home. I come home. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I took pictures. I'm hoping that she doesn't call back and tell me that, like, you actually broke my neck and, like, I'm going to get sued or whatever. And, like, who knows how bad this could possibly be. Uh, but she called back a week later, very kind of her. And she said, hey, I just want to let you know, everything's fine. No, no harm, no worries. It's all good. And I said, I'm, again, I'm so sorry. And she said, don't worry about it. Uh, it's kind of an, an, another way of saying, like, you're forgiven. It's all good. And in that moment, humanly speaking, I'm the one that did damage to her car. And humanly speaking, there's only one person who has the power to release me from what's owed or potentially owed. And it's by her just simply saying, it's okay. We forgive you. Rightly so, she could have said, you need to pay and make this right, or take the option of saying, all is good, and thankfully the damage wasn't that bad, but just in that moment of her saying, it's okay, you're forgiven, feels like a weight has been lifted off your shoulders. If you've ever been in that situation, you know what it feels like. And how much more so as we come to this passage tonight, we see the significance of what it means to be forgiven. As Jesus looks at this man and he tells him his sins are forgiven, it draws our attention to the reality of what it means for God in the flesh, Jesus, to look at somebody and look to us and to say your sins are forgiven. Amid all the burdens and all the struggles of life and all the things that capture our attention, all the things that distract us, what I think this passage shows us tonight is that our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need is for our sins to be forgiven, which only Jesus can do. So let's jump into this passage. I want you to see just three things that are pretty simple out of this story tonight. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is that there is a, uh, put it this way, there's a significance to our sin. Our sin is significant. This passage has always captured sort of my imagination when I think about Mark chapter 2. I mean, can you just imagine? It says that Jesus is in his home. He's teaching. The crowds have gathered to such a degree that they're in his house. They're overflowing his house. Most people say that probably an average house in that time would probably hold about 50 people. And so there's probably 50 or so people that are kind of gathered around listening to Jesus preach and speak. And they're, they're outside the house listening through the windows and the doors. When all of a sudden, as, as Jesus is preaching, I just like envision this reality of like dust starts falling from his head, or start falling on his head, and like pretty soon chunks start falling through the through the roof, and all of a sudden sunlight starts coming in, and like you look up, and like everybody's attention would be captured with like, what is going on up there? And all of a sudden you see faces poking through the hole, and you realize what's happened is that these men have a friend who's paralyzed, and they've wanted to get him to Jesus. 
And the crowds are so thick that they can't get them into the house. And so they realize the only thing that we can do is to get up onto the roof of this house and to start peeling away the layers of the roof so that we can lower him down and actually get him down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Here's all of these people here to listen to him preach. All these people that are here to listen to him speak. Well, all of a sudden, probably he goes silent watching this whole scene unfold. And here comes this man who's paralyzed, unable to do anything for himself, completely hopeless and helpless, being lowered, which is kind of a humiliating experience, I would imagine, in full view of everyone to see on full display. And here he comes all the way down to the ground. And what is Jesus going to do? His friends realize that if there's any hope for this man is to get him to Jesus. If we had been doing like a Bible study in this whole book of Mark and you just read Mark chapter one, you would realize like Jesus has been going on a healing frenzy in the beginning of this of this book. He's been healing people that have leprosy. He's healing people of, of unclean spirits and, and, and sicknesses and diseases. And Jesus is about restoring life and restoring hope and health. And so here comes these friends saying that if there's one person that can help, well, it's going to be Jesus. And so Jesus seeing them, notice what the text says in verse five. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, think about that. It's not just saying that Jesus sees his faith. Jesus sees his friend's faith. All five of these people are wrapped into this moment. And I don't know what it's going to mean for you or for your friends or your family or the people that you love and you care for, but I just want you to at least acknowledge the reality. Jesus cares about your faith, and not just your faith for yourself, but actually the, your faith is activated for the friends and the people in your life who you love. The ones who you're praying for and are thinking, I'd love to get them to come to RUF, I'd love to get them to come to church, I'd love to get to share the gospel with them. Jesus is moved by the faith of these friends somehow as they get him down into this hurt to get them down in front of Jesus. He is moved by their faith. And what we expect him to say in verse five Moved by their faith, we expect Jesus to see this man and say, Son, get up and walk. But that's not what he says. He looks down at him laying helplessly in front of him. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's not what we're expecting. That's not what his friends are expecting. That's not what that man is expecting. You can almost imagine the sense of maybe confusion or disappointment. Your sins are forgiven. We brought him here to be healed. He can't work. He can't walk. He can't play. He's never had a normal life. He doesn't probably have the government subsidies that a normal society like ours would have to provide for his life. He's totally, completely dependent. What he needs is to be able to walk and to be able to care for himself. And Jesus looks at him in that moment and says, your sins are forgiven. And all I want to argue to you in this first point, Jesus is telling us and proving to us that for all of the needs that this man has, there's a significance to the reality of even his sin that needs to be dealt with. Sin is significant and needs to be dealt with. And so he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Apparently, our sin is of far greater significance than what we believe. I remember a couple of years ago, sitting in front of the, um, the cafeteria, talking to a student. Um, he'd been coming to RUF. He'd been coming here and me preach. He'd been coming to fall conferences and different things like that. He'd been around for a little bit. And so we sit down one day. And we're having lunch. And I just asked him, like, tell me about where, where is your walk with, with the Lord? Like, what do you, where are you spiritually? Do you, do you believe in what we're saying? Do you believe in God is real? 
And he kind of just was honest for a minute. And he said, you know, with all of the things that happen in this world, with all of the evil and the suffering that we see, I just have a hard time believing that God's real. Is God really good? Is he really all powerful? And if he is, why do all of these things happen? Maybe that's a question that you wrestle with as well. And I think there's a sense in which it's an honest question. How do we account for the suffering that happens in the world? How do we make sense of it whenever we see evil and suffering that just seems to go on unchecked? Is God good? Is he, is he real? How do we account for those realities? I understand the question, but I actually think in this passage, Jesus is kind of turning the tables on you and me, and he's telling us something that we're not expecting. He's telling us that there's something more significant about your heart and my heart that we need to come to grips with, and it's that we are sinners who need to be forgiven. Out of all of the issues that we can ask, Jesus is saying there's an issue that you tend to ignore and I tend to ignore, and it's that your sin is great and it needs to be forgiven. If our sin is significant, that really is the second point. It's really that simple. If our sin is so significant, what it needs, our sin needs to be forgiven. We tend to trivialize, we tend to ignore, we tend to deny the reality that something is wrong with us. As a culture, our culture has shifted further and further away from Christian categories. It's even to say the word sin might feel weird to some of you. It might not be a, a word that you hear very often. And it feels almost like, a, like somebody's bringing in uh, a category that you're not used to hearing. And as a culture, as we move further and further away from the type of language that we see in the Bible and we don't categorize things as being sinful or disobedient or rebellious anymore, we can deny it. But I want to argue to you that that doesn't change the reality of its existence and we actually still feel the repercussions of something is not right with who we are and with the world in which we live. Universities across the country report that there's been a statistical, a significant statistical rise in counseling and in therapy on university campuses. When I first came to FAU, I met with the Dean of Students and the Dean of Students said to me, he said, we have an epidemic at FAU of depression that we can't figure out. Why is it that when we're 18 to 22, this should be the best years of somebody's life, that there's an overwhelming amount of loneliness, depression, anxiety, and fear? And he says, we don't have the tools and the resources to answer that question. And what I just want to submit in that reality is that we can deny the existence of these, of these truths, but when we come to God's word, we find that there's actually an explanation for this phenomenon. That it's actually the fact that we're a sinful people, that we have broken God's law, we've run from God's law, we've tried to live life on our own terms, and even if we want to try to deny God's existence, it still comes out in the way that we feel and the way that we experience life. Jesus looks at this paralytic and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins need to be forgiven. Uh, several years ago, this was probably like 10 or 15 years ago, I went to the doctor for a routine checkup. And the doctor says, have you ever had an EKG? I said, nope, never had an EKG. Like, I'll send the nurse in, we'll hook up the little machines, and we'll do an EKG. And so the nurse comes in, they hook up all the little leads, and they do an EKG. And the nurse looks at the printout, and she goes, huh. I'm like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> what? Is something wrong? And she goes, well, you have a right branch bundle block. 
which to me sounded like you have six months to live, because uh, I didn't know I didn't know what that meant. She's like, you have a right branch bundle block. Now the nursing majors in here know like that's not a big deal, and it turned out not to be a big deal. But in the moment, I was like, my life's probably over. And so, so then they finally kind of follow up, and they're like, okay, you can calm down, like it's not a big deal. Uh, but we do want you to see a cardiologist and get an echocardiogram. Just we're gonna we're just gonna like step this thing up and just make sure everything's normal. So I go to the other cardiologist. I'm laying on the table and they're doing the like the echocardiogram thing. And what's what's freaky about that is like as you're laying on that table, you're looking at the screen and I'm seeing my heartbeat on the screen. I know I have a heart. I know it pumps blood. I know it's working because I'm breathing right now. Right branch bundle block and everything else, but there's something that kind of freaked me out seeing it on the screen. Like there it is, right there. That's my heart. And God's word is calling us to see that if we could do a spiritual echocardiogram and display our heart up on the screen for everyone to see, like that would be a terrifying reality. Because the reality of the sinfulness that Jesus has come to cleanse isn't something that's out there, and it's not about those people. It's about me, and it's about you, and it's about the realities that we struggle with in the depths of our own soul and in the depths of our own heart. Jesus said uh, in Matthew chapter 15 that it's from the overflow of the mouth that the, it's the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not what comes out of a person, but it's what comes out. It's not what goes into a person, but it's what comes out of the person. It's out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus is saying these problems, these issues that we're seeing with, it's not because it's something that's wrong with, with the world out there, so to speak. It's something that's wrong in here internally within our own hearts. It's out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. In other words, our sin is ultimately against God himself and against his words, his standards, and his laws that we have failed to live up to. And it's his rule that we have rebelled against. And our sin needs to be forgiven. When you think about that list, though, when you think about what Jesus is talking about, like if you think about the spillover effect, the reality is, is that while our sin separates us from God, and our sin is, 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 is something that, that destroys our relationship with him. It's also something that ends up destroying our relationship with other people. And if you think about the struggles that we battle with within our culture and within our society, think of the way in which the very list that Jesus gives us is coming out of the heart of people. Think about the way that spills over into the relationships we have with one another. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, Slander. All sins that we commit against other people, not just against God, but against the world around us. Sin destroys us, and it ends up destroying the people around us. And so even though the physical realities of our culture, right, the physical realities that, we, that we'd love to see cure, homelessness and wars and relationship struggles and financial uh, the financial crimes that people commit against one another. And even this man who's paralyzed, while we long for the world to be fully restored, Jesus is showing that first and primarily what he's doing is restoring our relationship with him and with God by coming to forgive our sins. And so if our sin is significant and if our sin needs to be forgiven, here's the third reality that this passage leads us directly to see. And it's the fact that Jesus is willing and able to forgive you of your sin. Jesus is willing and able to forgive you of your sin. 
I love the fact that Jesus says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't ask to be forgiven. He didn't know that he needed to be forgiven. Jesus just comes to him and, and offers to forgive his sins. But the, the religious leaders respond. Look at verse 7. They say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're not wrong in saying that. Who can forgive sins? Only God. But immediately Jesus perceives this, that they're questioning him within themselves, saying, why do you question these things in your hearts? And so he asks them this question, verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells his paralytic to take up his bed and go home. What's easier, to say to the man your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? It's a little bit of a trick question. If you think about it, it's easier probably to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, after all, how do we know? How do we know if the man's sins are really forgiven? But it, only God can forgive sins, but who could really cure this person and tell him to get up and walk? Well, really, only God could cure him of this, of this disease that he's struggling with. So if Jesus could tell him, rise, take up your bed and go home and cure this man of his paralysis, then clearly this must be God in the flesh. And so by Jesus telling him your sins are forgiven and then telling him to rise, take up your bed and go home, the miracle proves the reality that his sins are forgiven by proving that Jesus really is God. The only person who has the authority to forgive sins is God himself. The one who has uh, the ability to forgive him is the one who is standing before him in the flesh. And while that outward miracle isn't something that's repeated every day, it's not like every day we go to church and we see somebody who's paralyzed get up and walk. Time and time again throughout God's word, God is telling us and revealing to us that he is a God who forgives us of all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness. Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that if any man confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive him of all unrighteousness. And the transforming power of the kingdom of God, the proof that this man gets up and walks, continues to bear itself out even in our culture. Alcoholics become sober. The disappointed find contentment. The power of pornography loses its grip. The depressed find hope. Those who are angry find peace. And time and time again, for Jesus to look at us and you and me to say your sins are forgiven transforms our life because the one who has the power to forgive also has the power to raise us spiritually from the dead and give us new life. I was recently struck by the power of this story of forgiveness uh, about uh, this year as I read the story about a guy named Andrew Bellotti. Uh, another another person who found himself on a, in, a, in a bad situation from a car accident of far more significance than what I experienced a couple years ago in the parking lot. Andrew Bellotti, out of, out of high school, as a high school senior, was drafted into the Major League Baseball. Uh, he says that he was the, the youngest of his family, and his whole life, all he ever received were the hand-me-downs. He got the hand-me-down clothes, he got the hand-me-down car, everything was always the hand-me-down. So whenever he was drafted uh, in the Major League Baseball draft and signed a big contract, he's like, the one thing I'm going to buy is I'm buying myself a new car. I'm buying myself a Mustang. And I'm going to finally get to enjoy something that's mine and something that's new. So he's got his new car, and a couple months later, he's driving his girlfriend to her basketball practice, and they're running late, and she's running late, and he's wanting to try to get there on time, and he's got this new Mustang, and he figures, here's the opportunity to test it out. I mean, you don't buy a Mustang and drive slow, right? 
And so he opens it up and he's driving as fast as he possibly can until he gets to a car and realizes the only way to get there safely is to cross over the double yellow line and go around the car in front of him. And as he crosses the double yellow line, a van pulls out right in front of him, unbeknownst to him, instantly killing the 50-year-old man driving that car, a man by the name of David Reed. Andrew Bellotti in that moment felt like as he recovered in the hospital that not only was his baseball career over, but the future of his life was over and that he himself personally was responsible for the death of this man who he never met, a husband, a father, a beloved figure within the community. He knew that he was guilty and everybody knew that he should go to prison and he stood before the judge knowing that he was guilty of vehicular manslaughter. What else do you say other than I messed up and I'm sorry? But the widow of David Reed, a, man, a woman named Lynn Reed, said that immediately she thought about this whole scenario. She showed up on the day of his trial and said to the judge, will you please go light on him? Will you please show him leniency? Because immediately, as soon as I had the opportunity, I've forgiven him. And I know if my husband were alive, he would have forgiven him before I did. It was a mistake and it was an accident. That man, Andrew Bellotti, still had to go to prison for just a couple of months to serve a, 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 a shortened prison sentence, but the judge listened to this woman. And from prison, he wrote a letter to, to this lady, to Mrs. Reed, and he just simply wrote, Dear Mrs. Reed, I am so, so sorry. I am so sorry for my actions that day and the recklessness in which I live and the way, the carelessness in which I live my life and the impact that it's had on you and your family. And I know saying sorry is never enough, but I want you to know that I'm sorry. That letter sat in her dresser for years and years and years to the point where she almost forgot that she had it. And Andrew Bellotti went on to continue playing baseball. He went on to get married. He went on to have kids. And he finally went on this year to make it to the major leagues. When all of a sudden she came across that note and thought, I wonder what happened to him. And started thinking about that moment 14 years ago in 2009 and thought maybe the time is now right to actually meet him face to face. They said the, the, the power in the room when they actually showed up that day uh, was one that could be felt among the people who were there whenever he finally got to look her in the eye, not just through words, but in the eyes, and say, I am so sorry. And for her to say, you're forgiven. Humanly speaking, there's only one person who has the power in that moment to forgive him for the actions that he caused that day. The one who's taken on himself the hurt and the pain, the one who suffered the consequences of what he's done, was able to look at him and say, you're forgiven. And you've got a beautiful life that you've now had the opportunity to live. Jesus looks at this paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2, and he looks at you and me, and we see the reality that Jesus is the one who takes on himself the pain and the punishment that you and I deserve. He's the one who ends up going to the cross to bear the punishment of your sin and my sin. And so when he looks at this paralyzed man sitting, laying before him, and when he looks at you and me and says, your sins are forgiven, he does so knowing that he's the one who's paid the price. He's borne on himself the penalty that we deserve so that you and I can have life. And it says in Mark chapter 2, that when he arose and walked out, the people were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. 
My prayer is that that's true for you and for me as well, that we so grasp the depths of Jesus' forgiveness for you and for me, that truly we continue to be amazed at his love for his people. Let me pray for us. Our Lord, our God, we do stand before you knowing that our sin deserves punishment, and yet you are a God of mercy and grace, kindly forgiving us from all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness. Will you help us tonight to understand the reality of your word and the implications that this has for us, that we might truly trust you and put our hope and our faith in you, we pray in your name.